I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And And we we love love the Odyssey. Odyssey. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Odyssey Odyssey and chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we're going to summarize a section of the Odyssey, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. On this episode, we're going to summarize books 13 through 24, and our fancy person is Alex Purvis, professor of classics at UCLA. Book 13. Odysseus finishes his story, and King Alcinous is like, whoa. So he decides to help Odysseus go home and stop bouncing around the Mediterranean. Odysseus is obviously super thankful. He longs to get home and prays to find his, quote, loved ones safe and his wife still faultless. A ship is packed for Odysseus and he fell asleep as it took off. He sleeps on ships a lot. Yeah, I get it. I fall asleep in cars all the time. When the ship anchored somewhere, the crew took Odysseus from the ship, still wrapped in his blanket and still asleep, and set him on the sand with all his things. Then they headed back to Scyria. Poseidon was pissed at the Phaeacians for helping Odysseus, so he turns their ship to stone and permanently anchors it. He also surrounds Scyria with mountains, seemingly blocking the Phaeacians' access to the sea. They mourn their fate, sacrifice twelve bulls, and pray to Poseidon by an altar. We never really find out if Poseidon forgives them. Now you may be wondering why Poseidon is pissed. It turns out that the island they've dropped Odysseus at happens to be Ithaca. So technically... Odysseus has made it home. You may also be wondering why there are 11 more books. Well, he still has a lot to do. So Athena appears to Odysseus as a young shepherd boy because Athena really likes disguises. She probably throws a super lit Halloween party. Odysseus, of course, begins lying his head off the second he opens his mouth because that is how Odysseus handles a crisis. Athena is delighted. She is the goddess of guile and strategy after all. He asks her where he is, and she tells him he's in Ithaca. He gets really excited, and then Athena transforms into a tall, beautiful woman and reveals her identity. Athena tells Odysseus that he's going to have to endure more hardships as he watches the mess that is Ithaca. She also mentions that Penelope has had it rough these last two decades, and tells him about the suitors courting her for years, and about his son getting a way to get him, etc. Then, Athena transforms Odysseus into an old man so that he may not be recognized and sends him on his way toward home while she goes off to bring Telemachus. By the way, Odysseus would have been around age 50 at this point. And after 10 years at war and another 10 years at sea and without any health care, he probably would have looked pretty rough anyway. And that takes us to the end of Book 13. Book 14. Odysseus takes the path Athena laid out for him and he ends up at a pig farm, hanging out with Eumaeus, the swineherd. The swineherd gives him some food and wine, while telling him about the horrid state of Ithaca. He blames this on the suitors, who have bled the palace dry of resources, and have eaten all the fat animals, and left only scraps for everyone else. He goes into the story with the suitors, faithful Penelope, and Telemachus' adventures, but we know all of that, so no need to repeat it. Just listen to episode one again, for a refresher. Eumaeus says his beloved master, Odysseus, is dead and gone, and our protagonist, who, reminder, still looks like an old beggar, 
prophetically announces that Odysseus will return within one month. Eumaeus rejoiced and asked the quote-unquote stranger to tell his story. Odysseus sort of makes up a really long story as the beggar in which he does mention meeting Odysseus as he was figuring out his way back home. Eumaeus doesn't believe this story, so Odysseus says, okay, let's make a pact. If Odysseus comes back this month, you dress me in nice clothes. If not, you send your men my way and fling me off a cliff. Deal? It's unclear if Eumaeus the swineherd agrees. He's more like, wow, that's intense. Then his friends show up and he's like, the guys are here. Time for supper. They had supper and went to bed. And that takes us to the end of book 14. Book 15. Athena goes to Sparta to tell Telemachus to go home. He listens and wakes Pisistratus up so they can leave at dawn. Menelaus gets everyone to prepare gifts and a feast, because like we said, there's always a feast. But meanwhile in Ithaca, Odysseus was still hanging out with the swineherd and decided to test his kindness because no one really trusts anyone around here. And by around here, we mean ancient Greece. Instead of asking if he could stay at the farm a few days, Odysseus says he doesn't want to be a burden, so he'll just leave in the morning to go beg. Eumaeus the swineherd was like, no way, Jose, you're staying here. So he passed the kindness test. Hooray? Odysseus asks about Laertes and Anticlea, his parents. Although it seems like he already knows what's up with them because he met Anticlea in the underworld. Eumaeus the swineherd replies that Anticlea died of grief for her son, while Laertes is withering away and eternally grieving for wife and son in a field. Eumaeus the swineherd then launches into the story of his own life. One, he's from Syria. Two, he had been escaping tragedy, and Laertes found him on the shores of Ithaca, bought him, and has been kind to him all his life. In conclusion, Eumaeus owes his life to his master, Laertes. So back to Telemachus. He arrives in Ithaca and tells his crew to sail into town while he goes to check in with the farmers and herders. Cliffhanger. He's on his way to daddy. And that takes us to the end of book 15. Book 16. As Odysseus and Eumaeus are having breakfast the next morning, Telemachus shows up. Eumaeus gets really excited and runs to him, dropping the cups in which he had been mixing wine. Wait, what? It's like 6 a.m. Actually, they drank wine that was often heavily watered down, sometimes 10 parts water to one part wine. So it's usually to disinfect the water rather than anything else. Sure. Telemachus notices the old beggar, and he obviously has no idea it's daddy, so he's like, new dude, who dis? Eumaeus tells the story he's been told by Odysseus, and ends it with, you can do what you want with this beggar. Telemachus is like, okay, that's weird, but I'll send you clothes and food for him so he doesn't become a burden on you. But he can't come to the house because the suitors are monsters, and if they're violent, not even a strong man stands a chance. Odysseus asks for more details, and Telemachus tells him the story of the horrid suitors who are ravaging the place, and Penelope can't refuse them or marry any of them because, ew, then, Telemachus asks Eumaeus to run and tell Penelope that her son is back, but only tell her, since the rest of Ithaca is planning his murder. Then he's like, oh, and send someone to Toliartes because he's old and sad. Eumaeus goes, and Athena appears to Odysseus as a tall, beautiful woman, but not to Telemachus because the gods are not equally visible to everyone. Athena says it's time to tell Telemachus who he is so that together they can plot the murder of the suitors. So Athena makes Odysseus look younger and better dressed, and then leaves. Telemachus sees them and is like, are you a god? And Odysseus is like, it's me, daddy. And Telemachus is like, 
Sir, I don't think so. You didn't look like that a second ago. And then Odysseus is like, Athena did it. She morphs me all the time. At that, Telemachus somehow believes him and starts crying. They hug and rejoice, and eventually Telemachus asks the question that's been on his mind for the last 20 years. Where the hell have you been? Odysseus promises to tell his son the full story. But first, they need to come up with a plan to kill the suitors. So here's the plan. One, Telemachus will go home at dawn. Two, Odysseus will go into town in the morning disguised as a beggar. Three, when Athena nudges at Odysseus's heart, whatever that means, Odysseus will give Telemachus the secret signal, whatever that is, and when that happens, Telemachus will have to find all the weapons in the house and hide them. Four, most importantly, he is not to tell anyone that Odysseus is in the house, especially not Penelope or any of the women because, quote, they need to be tested. Eumaeus, the swineherd, told Queen Penelope's slaves that Telemachus was back in town. The suitors heard and were really mad that their plan to ambush Telemachus failed. That evening, Athena crept in and transformed Odysseus into the old beggar once more. When Eumaeus comes back to the farm, the three men have dinner and go the fuck to sleep. And that takes us to the end of Book 16. Book 17. In the morning, Telemachus goes to see his mother Penelope, who is ecstatic to see her son, and asks him if he's heard any news about Odysseus. Telemachus reported that he visited Menelaus, who said Odysseus was trapped at Calypso so he couldn't come home. Meanwhile, Odysseus walks to his house with Eumaeus the swineherd so he can test the suitors by begging from them. Hospitality was very important to the Greeks. Odysseus goes in, and even though he's in disguise, his dog Argos recognizes him. He wags his tail and then dies. Some suitors give him food, and some get angry and start yelling at Eumaeus the swineherd for bringing a beggar into the house. Among the jerk suitors was Antinous, who Odysseus stands next to and begs for food. Antinous says no, so Odysseus accuses him of being a jerk who is inhabiting someone else's house, uninvited, ravaging someone else's food, and yet won't share a crumb. Antinous gets really mad at this, so he stands from his stool and throws it at Odysseus. The other suitors remind Antinous that gods sometimes disguise themselves as foreigners or strangers to a town to see who is good and who is not. Antinous doesn't really care, and he kind of starts a brawl because, boys. Penelope hears the commotion and calls Eumaeus the swineherd over to tell her who this strange beggar is that's got everyone all riled up in the next room. Eumaeus is somehow voluntold to then arrange a meeting between Odysseus and Penelope. And that takes us to the end of Book 17. Book 18. Iris, a big beggar, comes rolling into the party and decides to pick on old-looking Odysseus. But Odysseus is not having it. So basically they get ready for a brawl, which gets the suitors really excited because testosterone. As Odysseus removes his rags and ties them around his waist, he reveals some really massive thighs and shoulders. His chest is enormous, and his arms are ripped. Athena was standing near him and helping him look ripped. And then the fight starts. Iris hits Odysseus' shoulder. Then Odysseus punches Iris on his neck and breaks his jaw. And with that, Iris falls to the ground. Odysseus drags him by the foot and basically has him sit in a corner and think about what he's done. Everybody cheers and pours drinks in Odysseus's honor. All of a sudden, Athena decides to complicate things. But why? Because she can. She magically plants an idea in Penelope's head. She makes Penelope look 
really good. Yeah, whatever that means. And makes her want to go downstairs and be seen by the suitors. So Penelope goes down to the hall. The suitors see her and get all hot and bothered. So more people say mean things to Odysseus, and Odysseus challenges every one of them to any kind of test imaginable. Telemachus just then tells everyone to chill and go to sleep. They do. And that takes us to the end of Book 18. Book 19. Odysseus and Telemachus get the weapons ready for their ambush of the suitors. Later, Penelope sits with Odysseus, who she still doesn't know is Odysseus, so she can find out some news about, well, Odysseus. Wow, that's complicated. Yeah, but also convenient. Penelope speaks candidly of her troubles and her desire to see her husband come home, and Odysseus in turn tells her a pack of lies about coming from Crete and how Odysseus visited him once. He lies so well that he makes her cry. He feels a little bit bad about it, but not bad enough to stop. Penelope asks Eurycleia, remember her, she was Odysseus and Telemachus's nurse slash nanny, to wash Odysseus. While she carries out the task, Eurycleia recognizes a scar on Odysseus's leg and instantly knows it's him. Even Trixie Odysseus can't talk his way out of this one. Before she can speak, Odysseus violently grabs her throat. Wait, what? Odysseus then whispers his plans to Eurycleia. I'm sorry, is he still holding her throat? Who's to say? And asks her to write up lists of who's naughty and who's nice among the slaves, so, spoiler alert, he can kill anyone who isn't loyal to him. No, but seriously, is he still holding her throat? We don't know. And that takes us to the end of Book 19. Book 20. Odysseus beds down under some blankets in the hall. While he's laying there, some slave women walk by giggling on their way to sleep with the suitors. He gets instantly angry at them, like almost kills them angry. But he restrains himself. Wait, what? At dawn, as Odysseus wakes up, he overhears a female slave who has spent all night grinding grain for the suitors, crying out to Zeus to bring Odysseus home so she no longer has to work so hard. Odysseus hears this as an omen that he's supposed to retake his house, and he rejoices. Later that day, Telemachus tells the suitors to be nice to Odysseus. Who they still don't know is Odysseus. And treat him as a guest. The suitors are not down with that and start belittling Telemachus. Penelope is eavesdropping and it makes her sad and angry to hear the suitors harassing her son. And that takes us to the end of book 20. Book 21. Athena once again inspires Penelope to get all dressed up, but now... She grabs Odysseus's old bow and arrows and sets up 12 axes. She announces that the party's over, suitors. Penelope will marry whichever suitor can string the bow and shoot through the 12 axes. Telemachus tries the bow first, attempting to save his mommy. Aw, but no dice. The suitors, one by one, fail with the bow. Meanwhile, Odysseus goes out and reveals his identity to Eumaeus the swineherd and asks him to gather allies for the coming fight. Then he joins the suitors and asks for a try with the bow. The suitors object strongly, both because they don't want an old haggard man to steal away Penelope and because they don't want to be laughed at for failing if the old man succeeds. You can guess what happens next. Odysseus strings the bow and shoots through the twelve axes. And that takes us to the end of Book 21. Book 22. Odysseus, with the aid of Athena, immediately slaughters the suitors with his bow, like it's an HBO show. Telemachus, Eumaeus, and some other loyal slaves, like a cowherd, help out. But he spares the bard at Telemachus's insistence. Wait, isn't Homer himself a bard? Hint, hint. The fight ends like a Tarantino movie. Blood and gore soak the hall, and Homer compares the suitors' bodies to fish dragged up on the beach, 
piled on top of one another and baked in the sun. Ew. Ew. Gross. Odysseus makes the female slaves come and clean up the halls. Classic. Then he kills the vast majority of them in a mass hanging to, quote, cleanse the house of betrayers. This might be going a bit far. Sir, chill. And that takes us to the end of book 22. Book 23. Euryclea, who has witnessed this, leaves laughing. Girl's got a weird sense of humor. She tells Penelope that Odysseus is home. Penelope doesn't believe her, but eventually decides to go downstairs to question this Odysseus herself. She tests him, just as he has tested everyone else. Oh my god, those two were made for each other. Penelope then asks Euryclea to bring down the bed she shared with Odysseus. This is part of the test. Odysseus immediately objects. The reason Odysseus objects is because the bed was constructed in such a way that one pillar was made from a tree that was rooted to the floor. It's immovable. Yeah, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he tells a long story because, well, he tells a lot of stories. Odysseus made the bed when they were first married, creating it with exquisite craftsmanship and care, all by himself. Boasting much? He makes it out of an olive tree. Olive trees are sacred to Athena. Third wheel much, Athena? He also tells her that if she cut the bed from the ground, he would know that she had cheated on him. Wow. That was almost a cute story. Anyway, Penelope accepts this as proof of his identity and laments that they have been so suspicious of one another. The happy couple rejoices and cries, embracing one another. Then they sleep together and spend lots of time on pillow talk because, well, you know, they have 20 years to catch up on. Wow, that's a long night. Actually, it is. Athena extends the night to make this possible. And this takes us to the end. But wait, there's more. Book 24. The ghosts of the suitors. Yeah, not done with those guys yet. Travel down to the underworld, and they tell their story to a bunch of famous dead people. They're pretty sad about it, although they acknowledge they may have made a few mistakes. Meanwhile, Odysseus goes to visit his old, sad father, Laertes. When Laertes asks who Odysseus is, as usual, Odysseus makes up a really horrible and gruesome story. This sounds like a pathological compulsion. Laertes is extremely distressed and begins to lament and pour dirt all over himself as the only way to express his horror and despair. Ew. Odysseus might be a liar, but he does have some compassion. When Laertes' distress becomes apparent... Hold on. He went to a field to be sad for 20 years. When wasn't it apparent? Odysseus embraces Laertes and reveals himself as his son. To prove his identity, Odysseus tells a story that no one else would know. Because no one trusts anyone around here. Laertes takes a bath with the help of a female servant, and Athena makes him all buff. In other words, this is the scene where Laertes gets his groove back. Laertes and Odysseus go feast together with the other members of their household. Meanwhile, the family members of the dead suitors are not pleased and intend to seek vengeance. Telemachus, Odysseus, and Laertes all prepare for battle and talk a bunch of testosterone-heavy shit to one another. Laertes is overjoyed to see the prowess of his son and grandson and to hear their shit talk. Hashtag down with the patriarchy. The family members of the suitors arrive and get ready for battle. They're all about to start fighting when Athena intervenes, settles the conflict, and everyone rejoices. That's abrupt. Yeah, that's Homer's problem, not ours. And this takes us to the end of book 24, and the end of the Odyssey. Today, we're sitting with Alex Purvis. She's a professor in the Department of Classics at UCLA, 
where she's been since 2002. She is also the author of Homer and the Poetics of Gesture, which came out in 2019. Well, I guess I'll start with my first question. What's your favorite translation of the Odyssey and why? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I kind of have a few favorites. I My very favorite is Richmond Lattimore's just because it's in verse and it matches line to line with the actual Greek text. And it's the translation that I, you know, have used since I was a teenager and I love it. Okay. But I don't assign it for my students. I, I In the past, I've assigned... Um, Lombardo, because he's very okay. readable. And I'm going to assign Emily Wilson for the next time I teach. What's your favorite book? Of the Odyssey? Yeah. Oh, and I really have a lot of favorites. I have <laughs> like 24, and I kind of have like 23, and I like 19, and I'm, I like five. Okay. I, I like a lot. They're so, uh, <laughs> but um, you're picking, the, I notice you're picking the two extremes. We're looking at the end and sort of. Yes. Yeah, I love the end. I think it's so strange. So, you know, everyone has a problem with the end of the Odyssey. And so I really find it just fascinating to think about why it ends the way it does. And I love 23 with the, you know, the story of the bed and the, you know, the... The uh, night the, the, being the, elongated. The light being... And I love the opening of 23 where, you know, Eurycleia comes rushing in to wake Penelope up from this deep, deep sleep and tell her, you know, he's home. And then there's these kind of moments where Penelope takes her time to -hmm. decide whether she really is going to believe that he's back. So I love the ending. I really do. It's because it's so strange. Um, And then I just like five because it's got, it's a very mythical and it's on Calypso's Island and... Mm. You know, I really love the ending of book five when Odysseus gets washed up onto Phaeacia and goes through that kind of, you know, death and rebirth, re-entering the kind of land of beyond the mythological land. Mm. I don't know why. I just really like those ones. That's interesting because I don't think I've heard anyone say that book 24 is in the list of favorites. I just, I've written a lot. I've done a lot of scholarship on book 24. So that's partly why I like it because it's, it is a bit difficult as a book. Mm-hmm. So it may not have been my favorite book when I first read The Odyssey, but you know, as I keep rereading and rereading it in my scholarship, it's, the, it's a book that's always a puzzle to me, okay. so I like it. So, because that was one of our questions for you, was actually thoughts on book 24. Have you made sense of book 24? I, I think it's good for me. I like the fact that it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense as an ending, that it's very open-ended, um, that it could have been a different ending, but this is the ending that we have. I mean, I like that in terms of thinking of Homeric epic as part of a very fluid tradition with different poets, different bards would be telling different versions. Um, so, you know, there's this tradition that this ancient scholars of Homer working, you know, in the Hellenistic period, when they were editing the text of Homer, they all said, or most of them said, that the Odyssey truly ended at the moment when Odysseus Penelope went to bed. Like, so halfway through book mm-hmm. 23. And they said the rest of it is is a kind of interpolated or a false ending that was added on later and it wasn't actually by Homer, whoever Homer would right. be. Um, and so I think that the the poem ends perfectly at that moment when they go to bed. 
and it's a kind of happy ever after ending. It's like the marriage plot closes, you know, everybody's happy. But then you do have this kind of problem with all these dead bodies. Like all of the men of Ithaca have been wiped out and it puts Odysseus in a kind of strange position as a hero. And I think that the last book is trying to kind of close down or resolve or even, you know, ruminate on that problem of how to deal with this kind of crisis that you have in Ithaca, the social crisis where all of the men have been killed by this returning mm -hmm. hero, right? I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of catastrophic what he does, <laughs> right? It he is. He comes to a peaceful land and kills all the young men. Right. Not all of them, but all the young men of note. Right. So. Um, and, and it's not just Ithaca, right? It's like all of the islands exactly. around. So he's wiped out an entire yes. like population yes. of, of people on these islands. Um, and then the ending is odd, right? Because Athena intervenes before the families that are trying to seek retribution for these young men are able to actually start a battle. Um it seems like it's a sort of odd deus ex machina that yes. we have at the end. Why Why you like really compress that close into those it's last It's so two? compressed. It's like this tiny little moment of a battle as if it was taken from the Iliad. You know, we have one kill. So they say the suitor's relatives and Odysseus and his son and his father are there at the very end. And they, all the language is the language of battle narrative in the Iliad. And they come together and they start to fight. And there's one kill, Laertes, Odysseus, his father, kills one of the suitor's relatives. And then Athena says, you know, stop, it has to be over. And Zeus is kind of backing up Athena saying, no, it's over. Everyone's going to just go back home and be friends forevermore. And it is, it's so artificial as an ending. It's so bizarre. I don't know how to answer the question of why it works that way. I think it's deliberately, I mean, I said this before, I think it's deliberately left open. Like mm. the, the poem is perhaps acknowledging the awkwardness of what's happened, the awkwardness of the ending, but also, you know, bringing the kind of resolution of the gods, bringing the gods back in at the end to kind of fix the problems that can't necessarily be fixed otherwise, I think is helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, some people think it just is, it's just bad. It's just a bad ending. But this idea that there will be this truce and that from that moment, you know, the, the people will turn back and live happily ever after, you know, that's kind of one way of creating that ending for the poem. We also have this sort of odd ending of Odysseus that gets brought up in the poem, right? This is the point of Odysseus and the where he's supposed to go off on another journey to a place where people don't know anything about the sea and they mistake his oar for a winnowing fan. Yeah. Um, and I know you talked about this in a, an article on Mark Space, Odysseus and the Inland Journey. Um, and so you argue in that that not only would they not have knowledge of the sea, but they also wouldn't have any knowledge of Odysseus's like everlasting honor, his kleos, like what yeah. we get through the yeah. story. Um, so that also seems to be this really odd and kind of disturbing ending that gets embedded elsewhere in the Odyssey. What is, you know, how does that sort of interact with this odd ending that we get in book 24? Yeah, it's really strange. It's almost like a, 
there's a glimpse of this future story that's coming. So the whole of the Odyssey has been focused about getting Odysseus home, like achieving his nostos, his homecoming. And um, so he gets home and everything seems to finally be resolved. You know, he's back with his wife and he says, oh, there's one more story that Tiresias told me in the underworld, but I'll tell you later. And she's like, no, no, tell me now, tell me now. And he's like, well, okay, so <laughs> I have to leave again. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, with this whole poem has been about getting you home and achieving. This is why, you know, everyone wants the story to end at the moment they go to bed, because it's like, everything's resolved. They've gone to bed, they live happily ever after. But it's like, there's always an epilogue. There's always something that happens after in real life. You know, nothing just gets neatly tied up with a bow. And so it's almost as if he's undoing the whole kind of project of what the Odyssey was supposed to be about with this tiny glimpse of another kind of narrative, which is that he would leave and do a second kind of journey. But his second journey would be so different to his first. His first journey was to travel, you know, on all these ships with all these other Greeks to a, a big mythological land to fight in a famous war to get honor and chaos and glory and then come back, right? With this story being told. Whereas the other story that, that this other narrative that he explains to Penelope is that he'll just go on this walk all by himself until he reaches people who have never heard of the sea, who've never, who don't know what ships are. So if you're living in a, in a culture that doesn't know about the sea or what ships are, then you've never heard of the Trojan War You've never heard of any of the Greek heroes because Greece is so bound by the idea of the sea, right? It's a sea-bound nation. And so it's almost as if he's saying, you know, I'm going to turn into a kind of nobody, just somebody who walks and becomes anonymous and unheard of. And it's also a way in which he's resolving, you know, lots of people see that, that um, journey as, a, as propitiating Poseidon, who, whom he upset so much in book nine. Why is Athena so invested in Odysseus's journey? There's a way in which you need that, that it's, it's important for Epic to, that for there to be some kind of a bond, I think, between a hero and a god, because it helps us try, it not only elevates the status of the hero, but it also helps us kind of see how to think about those problems of relationship differently because they're figured not through two people, but through a human and a god. You know, it's a kind of impossible relationship, mm -hmm. but also full of new possibilities when you think about how it changes a, a character within a story. Right. For him to have this kind of figure who he's got this very close bond with, who's not a human being. Right. You know? And I think because she has no son, so the closest she can get, she has no mortal lover, like unlike so many goddesses, and she has no mm -hmm. mortal son, and so she kind of picks up Odysseus as her favorite because they're both clever. Right. Right. And she takes a real pleasure in that relationship. Like in book 13, when they sit together, and she kind of laughs and chides him. Oh, you're always... Remember he tries to trick her when she sees him and he says, Oh, no, I'm just a... She says, Oh, Odysseus. And she kind of strokes his hand. And they sit together looking out at sea and they make their plan together. And it's like, they're so close. And they're so similar. They've got such similar personality traits. And I think that it's really important for an epic poem to have a way of bringing the gods in okay. that isn't just them kind of 
overseeing these little puppet figures, but are actually trying in some ways to relate. There needs to be bonds. There needs to be right. personal relationships. Because there is such an investment. Yeah. That seems... They're so invested in humans. Absolutely. Because their lives are kind of boring. <laughs> You mentioned, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Penelope, and I'd love to talk more about her. I think she's... Oh, yeah, Penelope. Just, you know, she tests Odysseus, too. They both sort of test each other. They seem to be similar humans. Yes, they are. Okay. <laughs> They're definitely They're, okay. similar. So Homer calls them, you know, like-minded, and Penelope is... I mean, we get all these indications in the text of how clever she is, like her trick at the loom... Absolutely. Right, which we hear about first in book two, I think. And there's a way in which people have talked about how, you know, Penelope is often depicted as standing either beside a pillar or beside her loom, which would be a tall vertical structure. And people have talked about how she is there at home next to her pillar or her loom and Odysseus is out at sea against or next to his mast. And the two, so he's mobile, she's stationary. But the two are kind of working in concert, right? That they are very similar in lots of ways. And in that story where she's tricking the suitors with the spinning of the web that she unpicks every night, the suitors talk about how she got Kleos for doing that, for getting, she got fame, which is a word that's really applied mostly to Greek heroes, to men. And if it's applied to women, it's usually negative. But she seems to have made, she's so clever that she's managed to find a way of getting Kleos, which, which you know, enhances her reputation. It's not the kind of Kleos that Helen has or that Clytemnestra has, which is negative and, you know, she'll always be talked of badly. She's always respected and she's spoken of well. And that's very, very hard for a female character to achieve. She's managed to kind of find that thin, thin line between male Kleos and female Kleos. And I think there's so many ways in which she is very much like Odysseus. But one of the kind of surprises of the poem is the way that he doesn't reveal himself, that he hides his identity from her, but tells his son and tells his slave that he's back, but won't tell his wife. This is just very odd, right? And this seems to be a kind of test of her fidelity, right? Right. And so she, and so, we, okay, we accept this all the way through, and then when we get to book 23, it's this moment where he's like, she's, she even says, you know, should I run into his arms and kiss him? And she's like, mm. And then she turns around and tests his fidelity back with the story of the bed. Right. Right. And so it's a kind of, again, a bit of a surprise to suddenly realize that, in fact, the very last test in the Odyssey or the last trick is not Odysseus, but actually Penelope. So Penelope gets him. It's incredible. She kind of matches Odysseus and outdoes him. Like she actually tricks him. Mm -hmm. And so like she wins out. It's incredible. It's an amazing moment. But at the same time as she tricks him and makes him think that somebody has moved their bed, she also um, is proving her fidelity to him. Um, wow, this was great. Thank you so, yeah, so, thank so, you much. so much. This thank was you. so, so cool. Oh, good. Excellent. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. It's always fun to talk about the Odyssey. It is. It's such a fun text. So great. Yeah, it is. Thank you so, so much. Really Odyssey and Chill is made wonderful. possible with the generous support of UCI Illuminations, with special thanks to Professor Julia Lupton, without whom this project would not have happened, the Associated Graduate Students of UCI, and Professor Vinnie Olivieri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction. 